Hey listeners, you've heard on the podcast from casting directors and Broadway directors just how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. The Breakdown is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you authentically grow your following without using bots, fake followers, or anything like that. I particularly love the welcome packet and the videos they include that help you optimize your account. And wow, did I learn a lot. The TSMA is offering an exclusive discount for our listeners. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, on to the show. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with director Jack O'Brien. Jack has won three Tony Awards and been nominated for seven more, and won five Drama Desk Awards. Select Broadway credits include All My Sons, Carousel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Front Page, It's Only a Play, The Nance, Catch Me If You Can, A Catered Affair, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, The Coast of Utopia, for which he won a Tony Award, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Tony Nomination, Henry IV won the Tony Award, Hairspray won the Tony Award, The Invention of Love, Tony Nomination, The Full Monty, Tony Nomination, Damn Yankees, Porgy and Bess, Tony Nomination, Two Shakespeare Actors, Tony Nomination, The Piano Lesson, The Most Happy fella, the little foxes, among many, many others. According to the Internet Broadway Database, Jack O'Brien has 52 Broadway credits to his name. Jack also served as the artistic director of the Old Globe Theater in San Diego, California from 1981 to 2007. Additional select credits include Isle Trinkolo at the Metropolitan Opera, Guys and Dolls at Carnegie Hall, and Much Ado About Nothing at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. London credits include Love Never Dies, Hairspray, for which he was nominated for the Olivier Award, and His Girl Friday at the National Theatre. He has directed six movies for PBS's American Playhouse. O'Brien has also directed the critically acclaimed national tour of The Sound of Music in the world premiere of the Jake Heggie, Terrence McNally opera Great Scott for the Dallas Opera. Jack was nominated for an Emmy Award for his documentary, Becoming Mike Nichols on HBO. And if you've not read his book, Jack Be Nimble, please do yourself a favor and grab a copy. Listeners, I don't even have to tell you what a true theater legend Jack O'Brien is, and I am so honored to have chatted with him and be bringing all of you our conversation. As you can imagine, everything Jack talks about is worth noting, but one moment that stood out to me is when Jack talks about the importance of mentorship. He talks about how it's fading away a bit and the steps that he's taking to welcome the next generation of theater directors. He explains that mentorship is a necessary part of our education and essential for the development of the American theater. Of course, I had to pick Jack's brain about the audition room. Jack breaks down the audition process so distinctly and specifically in a way that I think only Jack O'Brien could, and he puts into words the whole audition experience in a way that I don't think I've ever heard before. As always, if you like what you hear, please take a quick second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you are subscribed. So next week's episode with Michael Benjamin Washington of Nurse Ratchet and the Boys in the Band drops in your feed. All right, listeners, without further ado, here is my conversation with theater legend Jack O'Brien. Jack, I'm so happy to see you and to connect with you again. It's it's been a long time since I last saw you in person, but we share this wonderful connection of both 
having spent some um, beautiful time in San Diego at the Old Globe, which is one of the theaters that will always be so close to my heart. And can't wait to hear more about your perspective and and thoughts on San Diego and the Globe. But um, I'm happy to see you and to connect. And thank you for sharing your time today. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, you You have a very, very good reputation. All the people I know who've done this say, oh, you got to do it with Robbie. It's just great. So I was looking forward to it. I really, really appreciate that. That means a lot. Yes. Matt Lenz is a dear friend. We're actually going to go see him this weekend. Gorgeous home. It's gorgeous. Yes. Yes. And we have a a year and a half year old golden doodle puppy that is probably more even excited than we are to. That's adorable. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that we had in common that I, I noticed in your book is you, I grew up with Norwich Terriers. Mm. Do you want me to pick one up? I, I do, actually. I do. Winston. Winston is, believe it or not, Winston is going to be 16 this year. Oh, wow. Oh, he is beautiful. He's, he's totally deaf and he has oh. cataracts, but he's game as he can be, aren't you, Winnie? So sweet. I know. And then the other one is Coda, and she's five. She's four. She was four this last week. So sweet. I couldn't have gotten through this pandemic without them. I'm telling you. I think they've saved my life. I really do. Oh, yeah. There's presence. These dogs are very communicative, as you well know. And so Mm -hmm. you really do have feeling of a sense of somebody listening to you and trying to respond to you and, and in their case, trying to control you. So mm-hmm. uh, great. Anyway, sorry. No, no, no. I was I was happy to meet them. So happy to have you on the podcast for uh, for a hundred reasons, and I know listeners are going to love to hear from you. But one of the big reasons, you know, all the fame and Tony Awards, and you know, all of that aside, what I think is really special about your career is that you have worked on big musical comedy. You know, you've worked on Shakespeare. I saw your production of All My Sons. You have this diversified career of all these different mediums and all these different styles. And I don't think that's something that a lot of people can say or that a lot of people do. I think for whatever reason, people either get pigeonholed or they just have their area of expertise. But I guess my first question for you is, is that something that you sought out intentionally was diversifying all the different projects? You know, looking back on your career, is that something that you tried to make happen or did it just kind of happened that way, do you think? I'm, I'm an odd composite, Robbie. I, you know, as a child, as a child, I, I, I wrote music and lyrics when I was 10 years old. And my father, God rest his soul, had demos made and sent to his business friends um, of these little songs that I wrote. I played piano by ear. I was very musical. I played trumpet when I was in junior high school. So I had this music foundation. And I also sang and danced as a kid. Uh, I did a lot at the university when I was there. I performed. I, pl- I played leads in a lot of musicals. Uh, if I hadn't lost my hair, I might have wanted to become an actor. I thank God I lost my hair. I can't <laughs> tell you how grateful I am to be spared that humility. But anyway, um, then, of course, I fell into theater in I was dropped as in hot fat at the university when this itinerant um, traveling company of Ellis Rabb and Rosemary Harris came to the university and they were the, the resident company for during my postgraduate years, the two or three years there. 
And I was stunned at these people, their variety, their the immediacy with which they took classic plays and made them leap off the stage with a kind of immediacy and 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 clarity that that was not pompous, that was not arch. And then when I haunted them and finally eventually forced Ellis to hire me as his assistant, they had no money. I took a 50, I was teaching uh, at Hunter College at, at, in New York, just having arrived from the university. And I took a 50% pay cut to work for Ellis because it was so important to me. But there, they had range. Ellis himself was an actor and a director. John Hausman was there at the time. Alan Schneider was there at the time. Ava Legallion was there. And, and they were in and out that company. And so I was exposed as a young guy to this vast range of people. And then Ellis took me with the luggage, I was his assistant, to San Diego where I met Craig Knoll in the late 60s. And Craig had a fondness for me and gave me my first Shakespeare there. And one thing led to another. So I've had this, I know, I know it's rare. I mean, I don't know too many of my contemporaries who have done musicals and new plays and television and opera. And I mean, it, it, when I, when, even when I look at it, I think, God, this is bizarre. But I never became a specialist. I never hmm. became known for one thing. I, I had all of this range. So I don't even know what category I occupy anymore. I, don't, I just don't think there are too many people who've had the opportunity or who have been able to create the opportunity that I have that has allowed me to participate on such a high level in so many different categories. Uh, and people keep saying, what, what is the difference? I mean, do you prefer one over the other? Uh, and my answer is no. I guess as a Gemini, it, it, it's stimulating to me to be a, a, a sort of confetti tosser, as it were. I mean, <laughs> I have a lot of enthusiasm for a lot of things. And I've been so lucky. The people that I've met who have cared for me, who've, who've taken time with me, I've written this in the second book because I really had to leave some trace about what it's like to work with Andrew Lloyd Webber or Tom Stoppard or Jerry Lewis or Neil Simon or any of these people. I've had access to all of it. So um, I sort of don't know who I am in that respect, except lucky. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you're, Lucky is one way, but also talented, hardworking. You also, you know what I think is really cool and, and something that just came up a little bit, what you were saying is mentorship. Like yeah. you had some incredible mentors, um, Ellis Rabb, um, Craig Knoll, you know, and and go into detail in, in your book with some really fun stories and, and some f fun pictures and everything. I think that's something that's kind of going by the wayside in the last 20 years or, or as people, as the rise of college theater programs happen and we go to college to take classes, you know, I, I don't know that mentorship is something that is as prevalent now, but it's something that you you hear on the podcast and people have spoken about as, as an important part of this industry and certainly passing the knowledge from, you know, from down from one person to another. It's It seems wildly important. Well, actually, 
I'm talking to our union, stage directors and choreographers, even now, because after the pandemic, everything is revving up. Mm -hmm. And so at the moment, I have three tours that are non-equity tours that are scheduled to go out in the fall. Sound of Music, Hairspray, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, Matt Lenz, whom you know and have spoken with, yes, one of my principal associate directors, and he has those three shows under his belt. But they're now all going out at the same time. So we need more personnel. And we are being asked, of course, and wisely, to look to diversity and all the rest of this to make it more inclusive than it has been. Mm -hmm. So I said to the union, I said, look, I chose a path that was nurtured by observation. I, when Ellis had his company in the 60s and 70s, I was the only assistant, not an associate. I was an assistant. So I took notes alternately, maybe through the week, from Ellis Rabb, Stephen Porter, Alan Schneider, John Hausman, Eva Legallian. Mm -hmm. And I learned by watching them what was different about them, how they spoke to actors, how they approached text, what they did well, what they did not do well. Ellis blocked gloriously. Stephen Porter never blocked. Legallion was a martinet and wanted people to do it her way. Houseman didn't give a shit. Uh, you know, he just go center stage and speak. Uh, it was fascinating to me. And the important thing, Robbie, was not that I saw them at their best is very often I saw them at their worst. Mm. And I don't mean that they weren't good. They were great people. But success, I'm fond of saying, only feels good. Failure teaches you what to do and what not to do. And watching them not make it work was a way for me to figure out what I would have done instead. Mm. And I found the power of observation a great, great gift. And so what I've been saying to the union is, look, I've got to enrich my, what, staff here with people who are now going to watch us put these pieces back together after 16 months. This is a perfect time for young people to come into my rehearsals, sit over there, watch me work, watch what I say to a company or to the actors, and then at the end of the day, I will sit down with them and take all their questions and ask, find out what they want. And I'm saying to them, look, there's work for you here if you choose it. If you find my way of working helpful to you, then come along on this journey. If you don't, if you're impatient, if you want to get on with your own career, God bless you, go ahead. But I'm going to be able to work over the summer on this new musical I'm working on with a half a dozen people who have already applied and we've interviewed them and talked to them who are who get it who get that it's not about immediately getting a job it's having access to a bank of information that would mm -hmm. be otherwise not open to you i'm excited about it but the thing that's turning me on is they're more excited about it and i'm and i think Oh, I'm onto something here. Uh, and, the, and the union thinks so too. 
The observation, the observable situation has, you're quite right, it's drifted away. People want their own show. They want to, people are saying, I'm going to direct this play when they've never directed anything before. And you know what, it, it, there's, there's more about what directing isn't than what direction is. I love that. There's a, you have to be open. You have to be patient. You have to um, allow people to participate and find out what's hidden, what their instincts are. I'm a big believer in instinct. I think it's one of the things this book is about that I'm writing right now, because how many times have you said in your life, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I knew damn well I shouldn't have stayed the night. I shouldn't have had that drink. I shouldn't have gone through that process. I knew it wasn't right for me. Well, why did you do it? You did it basically because I don't think in your education, anybody has validated your instincts. Mm -hmm. Telling you, think twice, be careful, intellectualize. But the truth of the matter is we're animals. We're animals who respond instantly to something that is exciting, that turns us on. And to deny that as a rich load of inspiration is a sad thing. Because I don't know if, if this occurred to you, but I can tell you, I'll have an instinctive response to something. We'll block it. We'll discuss it. The actors will say, oh, I don't think that's right. I don't want to go there. I don't want to say that. And I say, okay, let's try something else. We always come back inevitably to that first impulse. And now, because I've done so much of this over the years, I now think to myself, okay, we'll move on, but I'm going to remember what this is because you're going to need that in about three days. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that you connected it to just our instincts in life as human beings, you know, but then also instincts in the rehearsal room because they're not so different. They're not right? at all different. They're right. not at all different. And, and I'm not a Martinet as a director. I know I'm not. I don't. I, I, I have lots of ideas. No paucity there of coming up with stuff for you to do. But I'm much more interested in what you, how you respond. And, I, and that will be what you and I do together. If you show me what your instinct is, maybe it, is, it, is it more valid than mine? Maybe not. Probably not. Because your instrument is just as finely tuned as mine, and you have to do this crap. You've got to get out there and do it. So you're going to be attuned because your survival depends on it. Right. Right. The actor is the one also, yeah, that has to do it, you know, every night in, fr in front of the audience. So it's that's an interesting, you know, collab collaboration or, you know. I mean, there you go. If you do something as an actor in a play of mine that I demand you do, and you do it well, uh, we're both very pleased immediately. Oh, look, he did exactly what I wanted him to. Isn't that lovely? Mm -hmm. And you think, gee, I tried to please Jack and I did. And then I go away and two weeks go by and you get ready to do that moment and you think, I don't want to do that. He's not here anymore. And this doesn't feel right to me. I'm, I'm about to do a musical that I will not talk about now because it's not been announced. So don't go there, Robbie. <laughs> um, 
You're not going to find it out for me. Anyway, it's hilariously funny. There's so many laughs in it. I, I've never seen a script like it. And I'm going to be working in a couple of weeks on the first workshop of it. And I have to destroy the jokes because if, you, if you're getting a laugh, it'll go stale really quickly and then you feel fake or phony. But if there's a reality under the joke that makes sense to you in truth, then it's yours and you can get the laugh five different ways because you understand what's funny about it. That makes sense? Yes. Yeah. If it's real, you can, like you said, do it if you do it different ways. And also inevitably it's going to come out differently, you know, in different, different nights or depending that's on. Fun. That's fun for other, that's fun for the people in the company with you. You're not an automaton, that you're alive, that you're listening, that you're, you're available to another rhythm, another inflection. It's really helpful. It's very liberating, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially for the actor, for everyone. I do want to jump to, I do want to talk about the Old Globe for a little bit. Sure. Nothing will make me happy. Same. It's, it's, it was an important part of my development as, you know, as a young actor and learning. And I was lucky because, and as you know, you're familiar with the program, not only was I in classes, but I did, I think, 11 productions at the Old Globe. And these weren't just student productions. I was in the shows with, you know, like Nikki Martin, but also Adrian Noble's Summer Play Festival and, and, you know, worked with some really wonderful people. So it was, I got that you know, dual training and, and worked with some great, some great people. So it's a, it's an important place for me, but I wonder for you looking back now where you are and your time at the old globe, and we're talking about like, how, you know, how we learned and how we developed our process. Maybe you can talk about how, if the, your time at the old globe and, and working there as an artistic leader and directing different shows and being able to choose the shows and hire the people and program how that shaped your process when you left or as you are now, how, how maybe it was a, if at all, it was a learning experience for you or how it helped you navigate directing waters, then moving to New York full time and your directing work now. But I guess, does that make sense? That question? Oh, I think so. I mean, I was the first person other than the originator to touch that institution. In other words, Craig Knoll, the, the great Craig Knoll, modest, self-effacing, sweet, kind, hilariously funny. Uh, he created that. In the, he, he had arrived as an actor in 1934, and he died in harness. He, I had taken over, but I never let him go. I, I kept him there because, quite frankly, he was a superb craftsperson. He was a wonderful director and, and had a unique way of handling, an individual way of handling his productions that were real and substantial and, and thrilling. But anyway, the globe being the globe in San Diego was, even back in the 50s, a glamorous place to go. I mean, you can do very little better than Southern California. And there, there, and it's an and Balboa Park, that mm. beautiful park. And there's this charming little theater in the middle of all of this. It's like a playground in an odd way. And so I think a lot of people imagined themselves conceivably could see themselves as taking that over. I know Bill Ball did. He was a guest there in the in the in the early '60s, 
and actually went privately to the board of directors and tried to get the, the theater away from Craig. They had a terrible falling out. And for like 20 years, I got them back together again in an adorable way because they adored one another. They didn't want to be. Craig was not a vindictive man at all. But he held on to the reins, and, and he was the one who said to me in 1975, I was there doing Much Ado, and he said, I think you have the right kind of personality to work with a board of directors, which was the oddest compliment I'd ever heard. I mean, I didn't want to be praised for my ability to work with a corporation. I wanted to be a dazzling artist, which, of course, I wasn't at that point. But he, cho- he found me. He, he found me and insisted that I f- take over from him. I was not interviewed by the board. I was not put up for election. He said, it's Jack. And so I followed him and then included him. He, he stayed with me right until his death. Um, something I'm very proud of. We never had a crossword between us. We never, ever had a crossword. But it was Craig who gave me, I mean, I was there for 25 years. That's a long time. And if you're the artistic director of an institution, you're holding the bag. Mm-hmm. So if, as it happened one day, uh, John Rando, who was originally my first assistant, and he was supposed to come in and do a 12th night, toward the end of my career there, but he got a musical for New York, who's going to do it? I'm going to do it. Whenever the ball was dropped and I couldn't get Adrian Hall or somebody else to come and pick the the job up or there was no one available, who did it? I did it. And so over the years, I had a whack at everything from, I don't know, Bell Book and Candle. I didn't. That was... That was... Darko Tresnik, who did Bell, Book, and Candle beautifully. But but everything from a sort of boulevard comedy mm-hmm. to I did two Lears, I did two Hamlets, I did three Much Ado's. By the time I left the 70s, I had already done more Shakespeare than any of my contemporaries. Hmm. And there were still the musicals, and there were still other things. And I was there in this crucible. Toward the end, Tom Hall and I were producing... 13 and 14 shows a year, many of which were going to New York at that time. So the, the, the career that followed, as did the Tonys, as that did all the rest of what you're talking about, is a direct correlation with the 25 years of constant service and learning and figuring out and trying to honor the next assignment. You know, we're in this book, we're including at the end a chronology of what I've done since my first professional job in 1969. Wow. I mean, yeah, I've been at it a long time. And, I'm, and I have to say, I'm doing my best work now. I really feel I am. Experience will give you that confidence and that perspective. But the globe delivered me as a professional. The globe conditioned me, sucked the marrow out of my artistic bones, demanded that I get up and do it again. The stakes were very high. Des Makinoff was across town at the Ohio Playhouse right at the very beginning, beginning his career. And we were competing for audiences in San Diego. I had to give them my best stuff. 
by the time I left, by the time I moved on, which was about 2006, 2007, I'd sort of earned those stripes. I mean, I, you can't throw much at me that I haven't had a whack at before. That's for sure. Right. And is also another great answer for how you've also probably had this diverse, you know, um, mixed career of all these different genres and things post globe, because no you had cut, cut your teeth on so much of it. Like you said, sometimes maybe you wouldn't have assigned yourself a show, but you just had to do it, had to do it anyway, and, and learn how to learn how to do that. I, I have a very specific question that just occurred to me. And, and it's obviously important for me, because at in grad school, I did a, a lot of Shakespeare and learned a lot of it was a classically focused program. And some people say, oh, you know, but but did they teach you how to do TV or did they teach you how to do commercial, you know, commercial plays or new plays? I wonder for you, working on, you know, those much ados and those Hamlets and those Lears, what do you learn and what do you get from working on those shows that has brought you success, say, in your commercial musical theater career? Hairspray, Full Monty, Catch Me If You Can. What do you learn from the, working on those Shakespeare plays that you are able to apply to the big American comedy that we know today? I learned how to trust good material. That's it in a nutshell. There's no better material than Shakespeare. It mm -hmm. really is. I mean, it's, it's tricky. It's difficult. We have to find our way to make it live, but not because it needs help. He doesn't need your help. He needs your truth. He needs right. your clarity. He needs your sincerity, he needs honesty. When, when you do, let's say, a Midsummer Night's Dream, and you see it, and it's good, because you got good people, and you're lucky, and you have good designers, and all the, all the planets align, you realize how much greater he is, Shakespeare, than anything you're trying to give him. Mm -hmm. He's there ahead of you. I just, last week, saw up here, in Connecticut, a totally amateur community production of A Midsummer Night's Dream out in the forest with only one professional actor. And the rest were all not even people who are think of themselves as actors. And once again, that play delivered. You know, it's a, it's a great ensemble piece because you have the lovers, you have the fairies, you have the court, and you have the mechanicals, and, and there are four little ball teams going through this show. And each of them, depending on the chemistry, can take it away if, they're, if you're lucky. If you get, let's say, two groups of them good, you got a hit. If you get three, or God help you, four, you, you're in heaven. Mm -hmm. But one of them's going to land. And it was so sweet because, of course, the mechanicals end the play with that dizzy damn play. And, and that play needs amateurs. It doesn't need intellectuals. It needs people who've never been on a stage. And if you, get, you watch them do it, and they're, no, they're just no good. And you are, <laughs> you're peeing your pants with laugh because they're so adorable because the material is so good. I mean, as we, as we speak, Robbie, Hairspray is going up in London for the second time at the Coliseum. And I'm not there because of COVID. I couldn't get over there at, in time. And it's a five-day quarantine right now. So I'd be stuck in a hotel room for five days. It just didn't work out. But one of my great associates, uh, Benjamin Klein, 
his, who's already done it a couple of times. Jerry Mitchell did get over there because Pretty Woman is going on over there. So he was had to be there anyway. They went nuts last night. They erupted in, they stopped the show several times. And they, and the kids sent me video of the, of the curtain call uh, and the audience screaming. And because it's a great show. Mm-hmm. It's a great damn show. It's a gorgeous score. It's a hilarious book. It works like gangbusters. And you think to yourself, if you trust it, if you actually love it and trust it and honor it, whatever it is, but you actually believe in it, you believe that the material in your hands is as good as anything you can do. And that is the range of everything from Boulevard comedies to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. They, you know, there's quality in all of that. All we're trying to do is put the truth on the stage. It's an illusion. That's, there's a reason why theater and church started together. It's the leap of faith. It's to make you believe it's real. And you suddenly are moved or stunned or excited because you're witnessing somebody virtually in the same room as you who is suddenly seems to have transformed into something you wouldn't believe possible. And it doesn't happen every night. But on the promise that it will happen, you go. And that is why I think we are so starved for live theater right now, to be in a room and have exactly that experience that you are describing. I think we're just starved for it. We could see last night those dizzy Brits, they were falling over themselves because they had had a legitimate experience. They were Mm -hmm. moved. They were transformed. They were taken out of COVID and London and traffic and the football game with the Scots, they, they, they were taken out of all of it. And they were transformed to something that they had no right to believe was going to be good. And it was. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. Exciting. I can't wait to get back and have, have one of those moments. I know. I know. It's going to be wonderful. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Truly. And I think we've really learned that during this pandemic. You can watch all the Netflix you want, but it does not deliver that experience. That That's what you're talking about. And you can't do it on Zoom either. <laughs> you definitely can't. You definitely, you're very right about that. No magic there. Right. Right. I agree with you. I do want to jump to and talk briefly about the audition room. It's something that is at the center of the podcast. It's why the podcast was born. And just selfishly, I'm um, interested to just ask you some questions about it. You know, let's talk about the process. By the time you're there in the audition room, watching actors work come in, these actors more often than not have been pre-screened or been seen by a casting director that has that is bringing you you know a menu of options for different for different roles. So let's talk about that. Like those first appointments when someone is coming in with sides or songs whether it's a musical or a Shakespeare piece or new material for a new play that hasn't even ever been done before. This is going to be a bad question, but what what are you interested in seeing at these first appointments? What What is important to you? Is it a performance? Are you interested in seeing, you know, choices, people investigating, asking questions? What, what if you can even put into words is, is maybe the 
purpose of these first of these first appointments and and what are you what are you looking for all right first of all let's say this is a ridiculous process I mean, you heard it here folks from jack o'brien it, it is, is a ridiculous, ridiculous. process. It's, it's humiliating it's stupid it's vulgar you walk in a room you get however many minutes uh they're distracted they're eating um they're drinking coffee they're talking to each other they've got they didn't get some sleep last night they didn't get laid whatever the problem is you know they're not your best audience and then you don't know them and it's wrong and it feels wrong and you open your mouth and i don't know I mean, it, this is no way to judge my talent i'm a great artist i i i i've studied i've danced i've done everything how can you judge me in 3 minutes well baby that's that's 500 5000 years of theater you know that's it we've never had a better process it's so weird i mean wouldn't you think that after all this time from Aeschylus forward, we'd find a better way to exhibit our talent than that? So what is that? It's impact, it's presence. It's why do I look at her and not at her? What, what is it about you when you walk in the room with confidence that makes them smile? That's theater, baby. Part of the thing that I'm going to find out as you walk in the room is, do you have any presence? Do you take the room in? Are you comfortable in your skin? Are you relaxed? Are you distracted? Are you interesting? Some people are interesting, some people aren't. I can't help that. That's just human nature. Has nothing to do with anything except this indefinable thing that made you want to be an actor anyway, and made me want to be a director. The first thing other than that, I mean, how do you, so that's the first moment. So a human being has walked in that I think, I wonder if that solves a problem for me. I wonder if this quality is what is turning me on, making me excited to be in rehearsal. They open their mouths, and then the next thing we see is, is there any technique at all? Do they have a voice? Is it well-placed? Are their shoulders down? Is there anything eccentric that would be irritating? Do they look proper? Are they drooling, right? So the first layer after presence would be some semblance of what shall we call it, professionalism? I don't have to teach you how to do this. You know how to do this. You have skill. You have, I'm not saying that you have to be trained at, at an academy to do that. Some people have it naturally. Mm -hmm. Excellent speaking voice, a relaxed way of handling themselves, confidence, joy, joy. So then that's the, uh, that's the next wave. That's the next layer. Then you say, what did you, why do you want to do this particular piece? Is this the role you're auditioning for or are you giving me, as we say, your classical piece? Why did you choose that? Mm -hmm. Is, uh, do you find it interesting? Does it speak to you? Does it move you? If it doesn't, why did you choose it? 
So there's going to be what we call ownership. Hmm. They pick up the script or they are off book. I'm very impressed when they're off book. I'm very impressed when they don't have to read it. Mm -hmm. They know what they're auditioning for. And if they've done the homework, I want to see their eyes. I want to see their face. I want to see how their body moves. And finally, guess for me, do they have a sense of humor? Because if you have a sense of humor, yeah, I want you in my company. And I think we should all go out and have dinner or drinks or something. I think it would be really great to get to know you. Mm -hmm. But I'm sorry. I need a sense of humor. Yeah. People who are too serious about themselves, who take themselves too seriously, or are pompous, who, are, who have something to a chip on their shoulder, that's not for me. I'm a funny guy. Whether you believe that or not, it may not be evident in this interview. No, I, it'll definitely be evident. I'm a funny guy. And, and I'm not being funny for my own sake. I want to have fun with you. I want to engage you. And if you groove on what I'm saying and we can laugh together, or you say something and I think it's funny, well, we're halfway there, aren't we? <laughs> Don't fall in love with anybody who doesn't have a sense of humor. That's my other sense thing. That's, <laughs> that's free advice. You don't want to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't make you laugh. Yeah. The sex is good. The sex isn't good. But the laughs, they'll get you through a really bad place. They really will. Oh, gosh. And I think we've all learned that the past year and a half is mm -hmm. you need someone around to bring you up when you can't bring yourself up sometimes exactly. or when the rest of the world is falling around you. Exactly. So. Yeah, that was a great that was a great answer. I just feel like that was a horrible question that I asked. And I felt like you were really able to give it a succinct answer because it you're right, it, it is an imperfect process. And you know, we've heard that a couple times. And it doesn't make any sense. And it works. Yeah, I, I know. And, and at the end of the day, it does it does do the job. Yeah. yeah. I, I just uh, just have one more question for you. But but what do you wish you knew? about the business, maybe left, less about craft or process, but about the industry and the way it functions. What do you wish you knew when you were back? You know, if you can bring yourself back to that time being an assistant for Ellis or, you know, meeting, meeting Craig Knoll for the first time when you were younger, obviously it's a different industry now than it, than it was then. It's a different industry now than it was five or 10 years ago. Things changed so fast, but what what comes up for you about something maybe you've learned along the way or that you wish you you could have told yourself or really understood back then? And and there's something to be said for you learn things when you need to learn them in their own way, but but something that you could have told yourself back then. Well, okay. I'm a I'm a director first and foremost. So my received knowledge is basically trying to be defining what that does. And you, you, as an actor, you as, as a technician, you as a designer, you, you, you receive this as best you can. But uh, I, I wish I'd known to shut up. Um, we, we tend to talk too much. We tend to uh, fill the space with a lot of crap because we feel we have to know everything. The most valuable thing I learned, the tool that helped me the most was when I had the courage to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Let's see what happens. 
I threw the ball back instead of making it up. I mean, I make people laugh because I say to myself, uh, no, that answer I just gave you, I just made that up. <laughs> but you seem to need an answer. So yeah, I just thought, well, I like you very much. I'll just give you an answer. That's not the truth. I just... <laughs> because the truth of the matter is, when you, you... There has to be humility in our work together. I don't have to know everything. It's my job to help us get to the truth. And it has to be ultimately for me to walk out of the room and out of the theater and leave you in this hit. It has to be your truth. Mm -hmm. If it's not your truth, we won't run. If it is your truth, we have a shot at a run. Mm -hmm. and so when I stopped being afraid that I was deficient because I didn't know everything, I started to seriously work as a director. Hmm. That sounds a little neat, and it sounds a little rehearsed, and it's neither. It's the truth. Yeah, I I, I think that makes a lot of sense, and and I think just like you started that answer with, I think you can apply that to to so much. Whether you're an actor or a designer or a writer or a, or a human being, or if you're bagging groceries or you work at a bank, you know, I, I think that that's important. You, you must honor patience. You must give yourself time. It's not a race to the finish. We're not on a clock. The important thing is to, to, to try to find a way to learn something every time you do it and, and become more vulnerable in the process itself. Mm -hmm. And easier said than done in this, you know, especially in this business to, to be able to say, I don't know, or to be vulnerable and, and definitely something that probably can take some time, but I think I needed to hear that today. So, so thank you for that. This has been so wonderful. I could probably continue talking to you for the rest of the day, but for the listeners and, you know, um, we will wrap up, but I'm just so grateful for your time and for, to, you know, getting to talk to you today and chatting about the globe and just this, this industry that we are continually defining and try, trying to figure out together. But you, you said something in your book that, and I read it, you know, many, many years ago, but that I always kind of took with me. You wrote how, when you were younger, you kind of realized about yourself that you were, I think you call it hardwired for happiness or you you talked about how there's just some like joy about you that you just kind of were learning over time about that you had that maybe other people didn't have. And I totally connected with that because I, I do feel that way. And I feel that way talking to you and get that, that joy from you, even, even as we talk about this business that we both, that we both love. So thank you for that. Thank you for your time today. Well, I, I love being here. I knew I was going to enjoy it. And you make it so comfortable and so utterly charming, Robbie. It's a pleasure. Totally a pleasure. I was delighted to be able to do it. Well, thank you. Anytime, anytime. Thanks for having me. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Instagram and Facebook at The Breakdown with Robbie. We also have some pretty exciting supplementary content over there like Instagram live catch-ups with some of your favorite podcast guests. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and write a quick review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. 
And don't forget to check out TSMA Consulting. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, thanks for listening and get ready for another episode of The Breakdown.